and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death and to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, and in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Amen. Turn with me in this letter as we uh, turn to chapter 7. Remember, Titus carried a painful letter to uh, the Corinthians church. And uh, as Paul tells us today, as we've, as we've read, he said uh, he came to Troas to preach the gospel. And even though uh, a door was open for him in the Lord, Paul was distracted. And you and I know, and as I prayed, distractions. Uh, we become so distracted about someone coming as we're thinking of the arrival of somebody, as we're thinking about something is happening to someone. If we think an event is taking place, you and I can fill in the blanks that we know we're to do something, but we just can't focus on it because we've got this motor running in the back, constantly filling our head with noise. We can't get it out of our head. No matter what we're supposed to do, there's always something else there. And even in a ministry that God had opened up for Paul, Paul is even saying, is my spirit was not at rest because he did not know what was going to happen with that letter. You and I know what it feels like when Paul hit the send button on that email to Corinth. And you know how many times you read it. And you know how many times you look at it, and you wonder if you should send it. And sometimes in your delete bucket, you have many letters that you never sent to anybody because you realize, uh-uh, that wasn't a good one. What was I thinking? Paul pushed the send button, and Titus took the letter. So he did not have a clue how they were going to receive this. Remember the turmoil that's going on in this church. He had no idea of how... That was going to be received. He had no idea how Titus was going to be received. He had no idea what was going to happen. He had trust that God was in control. He had trust that people understood the gospel. He we've read it over and over again that he had trust from the first letter and the second letter that we have here. That he trusted that God was, had brought people from death to life from in, in, in Corinth. He believed that God worked there, a powerful work in their lives. He believed that God was going to sustain it. So he sent this letter telling them that they needed to, to be aware of, remember who he is and remember what they stood for. Remember who they are and what Christ has done for them and how they should be acting in light of all those things. And he says, I didn't find my brother Titus there, so I took leave of them. He went to Macedonia, hoping to find him there. 
Then we go to chapter 7 and we see, he says, verse 13, he goes, Therefore we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Titus came back with good news and told Paul, wow, it's transformed them. Their life is different. They understand. They've repented. They've no longer disobedient. Yes, there's still a contingency there. And yes, there's still a problem there. But a majority have come to understand who you are and have recommitted themselves to your role as apostle and as a spokesman for Christ. Notice in chapter 11 with me as we're going to read some portions here. He says, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Uh, do bear with me for I, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his coming, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. The contingency is still there. Even if I am unskilled in my speaking, as you've heard me say that people are saying things about Paul. I had a list, a laundry list of all the reasons why Paul could not be an apostle because of his physical appearance, because of his speaking abilities, because of the trouble and the suffering that has been going on in his life. If he was an a, a, um, ambassador for the living God, why on earth would God send a pitiful man like that? He goes, even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge? And we are going, we're going to see, and we're seeing that that is one of the accusations. These super apostles thought that they deserved to be paid. They thought that they should be rewarded and compensated handsomely because they are God's instrument. So they deserve the best. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. He, 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 he gave the word of God to them free because he loved them. He took uh, offerings from other support from other churches so that he could go to Corinth and do it there. That they were accusing him of. They were saying, don't, don't, don't be fooled by this guy. Remember what we, we talked about? You know, he's coming back. He wants to come back a second time so you can give a second time to that offering that's going to go to Jerusalem church, and he really wants to be a Judas. He wants to put his hand in the treasury and take it. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained, and I will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, the boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. 
and what I do I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms that we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. I repeat, let no one think, of me, think me foolish, but even if you do accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, be being wise with yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offsprings of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am better, a better one. I am talking like a madman, who with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jew forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Talk about a bad day at the office. Three times I was shipwrecked, and night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger and from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me for, of my anxiety for all the churches. These super apostles didn't have anxiety. They were opportunists. They were like the carpetbaggers. Came, on, came in and, and they were opportunists. Paul says he's had so much anxiety. He birthed these churches. In the name of Christ, these people existed and he was concerned for them. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to fall? Am I not an indignant? If I, am a, if, I am bo if I must boast, I will boast of these things that show my weakness. And the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. He goes, at, at Damascus, um, the governor uh, under King Artis was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from, hand, from his hands. I'm reading chapter 11 because we may not get to chapter 11. I, we, we probably aren't going to get to chapter 7 until maybe the end of August and September, and I don't know if we'll get to chapter 11, so I read it, and you know what? It's, we're gonna, I'll read it again when we get there, if I'm still there. I mean, we'll go over it. I just wanted you to get a flavor of where Paul was coming from and the argument that he was giving them and telling them that there are these super apostles, there are these false teachers who are infiltrating. They don't care about you. They'll act like they care about you. They have other agendas. And we're going to hear another term today, as we've read, that he calls them. That's why he's, he, he's very concerned for them. So we see chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul is still talking about his defense of 
what he, why he made the plans that he did and who he is. Now, from 14 on, all the way to chapter 7, he's going to talk about his apostleship, talk about his ministry. He's going to talk about the ministry of Christ that has come through him. So he was glad that he saw Titus. Now notice what he says after I've read this anxiety he had, his concern, his Notice what he boasts, and he boasts in all of these beatings. These guys, as we're going to, you're going to read in a couple weeks, all the letters of recommendations these guys got from other churches and other people to bear their credentials. And Paul is saying, who, who would take all of this stuff for you guys? For the cause of Christ, would these guys who don't have a scar on them, who travel the best, who have the best suits, who look the best, have tans, and their hair is always done. These people that are always so cool, you think they would take any of this? That's why he's boasting. <coughs> and now he's going to say something in transition <coughs> that is going to completely blow the minds of the readers and also of us if we come to understand what this means we've read this many times you've read it i've read it P favorite passage he goes but he gives into this thanks right he gives us thanksgiving he's done that in chapter one blessed be the god our father of our lord jesus christ the mercy of god of all comforts who comforts us we thank god for all this in chapters one verses three through eleven he talks about you were comforted with the comfort that Christ give us. We, we felt, the, the, you know, we were suffered in all these afflictions and we, we even were given the sentence of death and we didn't know what was going to happen to us, but we believed God was going to deliver us. And he, we continue to believe that God will deliver us ultimately from death itself. And how could we not believe that if we didn't believe in Easter and we believe in the resurrection? So he says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Now, I think most of you, you may not be movie buffs, but many of you have seen Roman movies, correct? You've certainly seen Ben-Hur, and you've seen Charlton Heston riding on the back of the chariot, right? He was a slave, and, and then he, uh, uh, he saved this somebody's life, I forgot who it was, and and, and, you know, he, he came in on the back. And, and you see all the pomp and the circumstance. And you can read about it that sometimes these lasted for days. These are, these are a official processions that lasted for days with all kinds of, of uh, parades and uh, entourages. There were, you know, the spoils of the battle. The, the victor king or the victor general would be riding in the, into the city and they couldn't wait to get there because the smell of this victory. They would, there would be fragrances, flowers, and incense, and all kinds of wonderful smells. They couldn't wait to get home because the smell of victory was so exhilarating. And it was good for the people. They had faith in their warriors. They had faith in their king. They had faith in their kingdom. They realized that another, another victor, another enemy vanquished. And so we see these processions come in. And what's a part of this is that we see, along with the victor, as it says, the victor leads the parade, and behind them comes the captives. 
They would be the king or the ruler or the, or the generals. They would be bound. They would be chained. And not only would that bring enough, but they would end up, if they were in Rome, like others, you know, you can go to different paintings and, and uh, drawings on that, you know, historically are found on stone and in caves everywhere. You could see that they would, they would ride these in, and then in Rome they would go to the temple of Jupiter and offer a sacrifice. And then after they offered the sacrifice, they would execute everybody they brought in as the last applause, <laughs> which to them was wonderful. This is the ultimate judgment. You defy our king, you're going to be executed. So we can get all that. But notice what Paul says here. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Keep your finger there and turn with me to Colossians chapter 2 because this is the only other place this word of being triumphant is used. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15. Verse 13, And you were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So we see that it's not a good thing to be triumphed over, correct? Notice Paul is saying now, on its face value, that Christ leads us in triumphal procession. Now, is Paul leading the triumph? Is he leading the procession with Jesus? Or is Jesus leading Paul? Which would mean... Paul would be a slave and a servant who deserves to die. Now, listen to what the King James Version says. Now thanks be, to, be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. Now you see how the King James turns it around, and instead of saying that Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, he is saying here, uh, King James Version says, that uh, be thanks to God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. And many believe that the King James was affected by John Calvin's uh, translation and commentary on this, because John Calvin had a hard time believing that Paul was a prisoner and a captive. He couldn't just get his head wrapped around that fact. So we see that the effect of the, of the King James Version was that they took maybe Calvin's interpretation and translation of this, changing this grammar, not changing it to be deceitful, but thinking that he had a hard time with it. Could it be another kind of grammatical parsing going on here so that it wouldn't be this terrible, repugnant thought that Jesus is leading Paul and all the apostles in all of us 
as slave and captives to be murdered. But that's what it says. That's what he is saying. When we are led, we are led by Christ. And Paul is saying this because he wants to un let them understand that Paul is willing to die for the church. Paul is willing to die for the cause of Christ. Paul has died. I no longer live. Christ lives within me. The life I live, I now live by faith. It is saying that we have to die to ourselves. It's a constant, ongoing death that we have. And this is what it's talking about here. These other disciples, these other apostles would never think of dying. If they thought they were dying, they thought they'd be failures. Paul is putting right in their face and in the face of these Corinthians, realizing that Paul is saying something that's unbelievable. And if you turn with me to chapter 4, Paul kind of gives us, again, we're going to be looking at that in a couple weeks, but so what? We'll have to read it to get an understanding. Chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. You see how he is using that picture to present what it is to be an apostle, what it is to be a follower of Christ. Now first, he says we, and he's talking about the apostolic we, but this can be then carried on to all believers. Because it leads him, it leads all the apostles, and ultimately leads us to the place where we are treasures that are being, that are, I mean, carrying around treasures in jars of clay. That we are afflicted for the faith. Now, talking about, Paul is saying that this is what the role of an apostle was. Again, he's trying to reflect that the apostles that Jesus picked have nothing like, their life nothing like, nor do they look like or do they act like anything like these guys. For we, verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal life. So death is at work in us, but life in you. You see how he turns that all around. You see how now he's talking about this procession that Jesus is the victor. Jesus has vanquished death. No more sting. No more worry. Jesus died on the cross. He, he died for all of our sins. God's wrath is taken away. There can be any greater victory than the victory over sin and the victory that God has no longer angry at us, but now we are recipients of God's love. And so he is... Christ is that triumphal king that rides in and we are those who are behind him as captives giving our lives over every day. The apostles are saying this, Paul is saying this, and we do. Every day we give our lives over as he says, for in case we lead people to Christ, in case we tell people about Jesus, we are showing them that it is our death that we've understood for ourselves that we had to die to ourselves so that we would come to know Christ and pointing out our death so these people might understand what life is really all about, what true life is. 
I hope you see that connection because that's what he's saying. You can't understand it any other way. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us, the disciples, the apostles, and ultimately through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Who's in control? God is. Notice what he says here. He goes, through us, the fragrance of the knowledge of him spreads everywhere. That means by us living every day, but ending up dying to ourselves, ultimately like Paul on the road to Damascus, dying so that he may be born again and live, we too have to die to ourselves and then live. And so what he is saying here is that when we live that kind of life in the midst of the world, what are we doing? We are like this great procession, though to the people that were dying, the fragrance of victory wasn't very sweet. You know, their smell of the victory was their smell, the captive smell of vanquish, like where do we go from here? We know the next step is the guillotine or the sword. Or, you know, they used to throw them in the, in the Colosseum and in the, uh, into the, uh, where the gladiators and actually end up getting killed by the gladiators for a Sunday afternoon entertainment. And so we see here that he says, through us, the apostles and us, the fragrance and notice he's going to use the term, he used the picture of this procession, and now he words, uses the words of fragrance. For we are the aroma of Christ. Now in the Old Testament, what wafted up to God? The fragrance, the aroma, the smell of the sacrifice. Who is ultimately the sacrifice? It's Jesus. But we in Christ, he says, for we, notice, we, are the aroma of not us, but of Christ. To who? To God. We are dying to ourselves. We are living for Christ, which means every day we die to ourselves. What does that mean? It sounds like Romans 12. In light of, therefore, of God's mercies, offer your lives, offer your bodies, offer everything you've got as a sacrifice, as a act of worship. Worship in the Old Testament meant nothing but burning, of killing, of incense, all of these sensual smells that took place. Paul is saying in Romans, and he is saying here, that we are that fragrance. We are the aroma of Christ, not because of us, but because we are dying for Christ. We are captives of Christ. We are slaves of Christ. We are now followers of Christ. To the world and to God, we are a sweet aroma. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We have a smell. To one, a fragrance from death to death. And to the other, a fragrance of life to life. To some people, when we talk about Christ and when we live for Christ, and we people just are moved because we are then 
spreading the knowledge of God by our very actions and then ask for the answer that, for the hope that lies within us, we give them an answer. It's not like, you know, you know, you speak, sometimes you speak the gospel and sometimes you use words, which is a total farce. It's not true. You can't speak the gospel without speaking the gospel. But many churches and many people are doing lots of social action because they want to make the world a better place and never tell anybody about Jesus because they're there just to love. And that's not the gospel. But to some, we are a fragrance. I like some say, we are a fragrance. And the NIV says, a smell. You know, when, I, when there's a fragrance, even though I got sinus infection, you take a deep breath and you smell something, don't you? I mean, I grab Susie's hair sometime and smells good. Right? Means a lot. Guys, right? When you smell your wife's hair or something, it's like this. Home. Right? And then you're sitting in the subway and somebody else comes next to you. And it's not a fragrance. It's not an aroma. As the old, uh, old Spice commercials, I think it was, the odiferous. <laughs> odiferous smell, as Charles Barkley would say. Odiferous odor, the smell. Like, boy, I smell something and it isn't an aroma. To some people, we smell. We aren't fragrant. We smell. There's that joke when, you know, Billy Graham was playing golf, and, and uh, you've probably heard this a zillion times, but I'll tell you again anyway. Billy Graham was playing golf, and a person was playing golf with him, and he ran off the course, and he says, if I have to play golf with that man one more time, if I've got to be around him, I, don't, I can't stand being around him. And he said, why? What did he say? He said, nothing. I just had a bad day of golf. Picking on Billy Graham, picking on who he is and who he reflects just to blame someone he's going to go after him. They'll find something wrong with us. These people, there are people who don't like us at all. They don't like what we stand for. When we say we're Christians, we're politically incorrect immediately. We don't know truth. And I probably said this, you know, when I went for jury duty that one time, the one question they found out, I was a pastor. The one lawyer looked at me and said, you think you can be truthful? You think you can be objective? I went, what are you talking about? Why don't you think I'm gonna be, I can't be objective? Why, I'm either gonna give the capital punishment for parking tickets, or I'm gonna let everybody off, right? It's either one extreme or the other, so can I be objective? So when they commiserated over the list of jurors, who was the first one on the list? You want the pastor? I don't want the pastor. He's gone. I was the first one they got rid of. Because I can't be objective. I'm either too strong or too weak. They don't, we are not liked by the world. Jesus says, the world's going to hate you because of me. This is what Paul is saying. To some we are going to be a great aroma, to others we are going to be a stench. We are going to be a smell of death. Because they're going to be reminded, don't, you know, Jim, you can come along, my friends told me once, you can come along on this vacation, but don't ruin our fun. Why am I going to ruin their fun? I may not join in, but I'm not going to ruin your fun. Have all the fun you want. 
That's, that's how we're labeled. That's how we are. That's how the gospel has this effect of when we walk into a room, as you and I know, I know perfectly in my family at times, the Red Sea parts when I walk into the room. Oh, he's here. Oh, the pastor's here. We don't say anything. And this is what Paul is saying in a real way. And this isn't saying that you and I weren't there once. You and I were dead in our trespasses. You and I didn't always follow Jesus. You and I always called. I remember the Jesus freaks I went to high school with. Did we call them Jesus freaks? You Jesus freak, we called them. I mean, I would have called myself, a, I mean, I called myself a Christian totally. Had my hands folded, went to communion. I told you the whole gig. But these people were Jesus freaks carrying the Bibles. Now you guys are going too far. And don't, don't preach to me. I don't want you telling me anything. And now look where I'm standing. So he says, to one we are the fragrance. And then he asks this question, which you may think, you may think is going to be a negative answer immediately. He says, who is sufficient for these things? We, are, we think we're going to say, no one. But notice the four in my Bible, the letter, the, in, the, in the ESV, it translates that Greek word there, gar, is for. Because there's a reason. For. We are not like them. We are sufficient because what does he say? Because these men are peddlers. They're peddlers. This was, and you know, being a peddler was not a vocation that your mother and father would want you to write home about. These are peddlers. When you shook their hands, you counted your fingers. Like so many of those super apostles, so many of them, they are peddlers. Peddlers is a term that in one sense was used for people who peddled wine. And they broadcasted the best and they diluted it with water. And so when you drank it, it was diluted cheap wine. And Jesus is saying, I mean Paul's saying here, that these people are diluting the truth. And folks, all you got to do is go on websites of churches around here and around the country and see how deluded. They'll talk about everything in the world but who Jesus is. And they don't want labels. We don't want anybody to know what we believe them. We don't want to scare them off before they come to church. Now to me, that's insanity. Complete insanity. Deluding the word of God. And this is upon these people who are pastoring and starting and leading these churches it's on them because like so many peddlers of god's word he says but as of men so notice paul is saying we are sufficient why how can paul say he's sufficient for this job for we are not like peddlers he says of god's word but we are as men of sincerity we are men commissioned by god Prepositional phrases, very important. My English teacher would be very happy that I point this stuff out. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. God is his witness. He talked about, as God is my witness, last week when he says um, about telling them the truth. Can you imagine Paul, anybody in a right mind, saying, God is witnessing me, and may he curse me if I'm not telling the truth. Nobody said those words. Paul is using them and saying, may God strike me dead if I'm not telling you the truth. You be my witness if I'm not telling you the truth. And here he says here, he says that we are commissioned by God. These are not. 
Verse chapter 11, right? These men are peddlers. These men are servants of the serpent. Now, I'm not going as far as saying these people around and the people who are, who are doing these things of mega churches and the churches are full and people are coming out and they're all wonderful. And if you ever look at any of their messages and you look at any of their websites, it's very hard to find any kind of truth there whatsoever other than that Jesus saved you. And you need to read the Bible. You stay pygmies, as I've talked about in the past. I'm not saying that. I am saying, though, that they are deluding this word of God, deluding it. And Paul is saying, we are sufficient. Why? Because we know that we're better than them, as he has said. We're better than them because we are commissioned by God. And in the sight of God, God sees who we are. We have no qualms of God challenging us for what we do and who we are. And we speak in Christ. That's a powerful statement. That's a powerful defense of his apostleship. And this powerful offense of him and his uh, other apostles. And it's a powerful defense for us. Because folks, if we are not people of integrity, if we are not people of sincerity, then what credibility do we have? We can say we're believers and then go off someplace else. It's like writing your, your testimony on a wall, on a board, and wiping it off while you're writing it. It, has, it vanishes. It has no credibility whatsoever. So he's saying yes. He's giving an argument for who he is and why he can say why he's saying it and why he is an apostle and why he needs to defend that, why important it is because if he is talking about Christ, if he is giving the very word of God to them, that his credibility means everything. But for us who trust in this word, we need to make sure that we believe it. We've got to make sure that we go to a church that teaches it and believes it. In closing, here's a book that I've told you about several times. No Place for Truth, the first installment by David Wells or Whatever Happened to Evangelical Theology. I love this chapter of his book. It's called, he's talking about pastors, and he calls this title, The New Disablers. Pastors once believed that they were called to think about life, to think in ways that were centered in and, dis and disciplined by the truth of God's word. Although, as history shows, there has always been a tendency latent in American soul to think of religion in terms of utility rather than its truth. Modernity has now exaggerated this tendency to the extent that the older ways of understanding pastoral responsibilities are disappearing, along with the older ideas about training pastors for their work. As the technological world has encroached upon the pastorate, management by technique has come to replacement, replace management by truth. The almost total absence of biblical and theological grounding for the material presented in a magazine, uh, a Christian magazine, that we have already noted is the rule now, not the exception. It is not understanding that this material seeks out a, but a way to manage the church's problems. It is not about truth, it's about technique. And so the professionalized pastor has often reduced the uncontrollable world of God's truth by procedure, using committees to diminish the church and psychological techniques to diminish the soul. 
Rough truth gives way to smooth practice. The transcendent gives way to the procedural. The jerks in the moments of discovery when God's world illumines our own gives way to moments in which our world brings his into tame submission. As the world of Christian breaks down, the hands of the professional reaches up to seize and to overcome what is truthfully theirs. This is reducing truth and Christianity to atheism. It is an atheism that reduces the church to nothing more than the services it offers or the good feelings the minister can generate. In other words, where professionalism is at work, there the ministry will typically be deprived of its transcendence and reduced to little more than a helping profession. And last, he says this, um, it should be clear now that there are two quite different models of ministry at work in the evangelical church today, and theology is located quite differently in each. In the model of the church that has its roots in the Reformation and in Puritanism that followed, theology is essential and central. In its modern-day evangelical descendants, however, theology is often only instrumental and peripheral. In the one, theology provides the culture in which ministry is understood and practiced. In the other, this culture is provided by professionalism. The difference between two models is not that theology is present in one and not the other. Theology is professed and believed in both. But in one, theology is the reason for ministry, the basis for ministry. It provides the criteria which success in ministry is measured. In the other, theology does none of these things. Here, ministry provides its own rationale, its own criteria, and its own techniques. In the second model, it does not reject theology. It simply displaces it that it no longer gives the profession of ministry its heart and fire. That's why Paul is saying this is so important for the Corinthians to understand this. That's why it's so important for us to understand, as you saw me go through last week and bring out these different doctrines that gave Paul a theological state of mind. That's what we have. That's when he says, I give you the mind of Christ, that's the mind that we have to have when we're thinking about church, when we're thinking about mission, when we're thinking about finding a pastor, when we're thinking about living our lives, that has to be at the forefront of everything who we are and what we do. That's why Paul is, rem is, is reminding these Corinthians who he is. He's not boasting in his recommendations. He's not boasting in his name. He's not boasting how big the church is. He's not boasting in how many converts he has. He's not boasting. In He's boasting in that these Corinthians love Jesus. And there's a church and a place where there was none before. That's what he is showing them. And he loves them so much that he's willing to sacrifice his very life. He's willing, as Paul writes in, in Colossians chapter 1, that he is willing to suffer for Christ. Now, it's not replacing Christ's suffering, but he's willing to continue the suffering of Christ for the church. So that's why it's important. And I hope you, you, you've come to understand how important it is that we interpret that phrase, chapter 2, verse 14, about being a procession. Because yes, we can say that we are with Christ and he leads us triumphantly, but he's not talking about us being triumphant like Jesus. He is the king. 
He is the victor, and we give our lives over to the servanthood of Christ, that we die to ourselves. We are willing to allow our very lives, our suffering, to be the hallmark of sharing and spreading the word of God to people. So let's pray. Dear God, I praise you and thank you again for this word. I thank you for superintending it and preserving it for us. I thank you, Father, that we have a Bible that's connected from beginning to end, and that, as Paul has written to us, that all of the promises are yes and amen in Jesus, that he is the beginning, the end, and the very fulfillment of everything that we hope for and desire when it comes to who you are. Father, that we look at the Bible and we realize that you are the very core, the very subject of this. It's not about any other kind of subject other than a book about who you are and how you have revealed yourself to us by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that most importantly you give us those lenses to take a look at this book. Because Lord, as he writes to Timothy, Paul says, Timothy, watch your doctrine. Because you are not only saving yourself, but you're saving those who listen to you. So Lord, we have a responsibility to get it right. And I pray that by your Spirit, you will guide us and bless us and give us a hunger for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We close our song.